welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, we are going to get into the final review of the NFC West preview with the Arizona Cardinals and someone from Revenge of the Birds, uh, one Mr. Blake Murphy. It was a great interview. We'll get that to you later. Uh, and of course, we're going to have a review of the preseason game. Because that's what we do. I guess we review preseason games. That's a, what that's what we've been reduced to at this point. Is, I mean, is that re- is a thing that we do. We yeah. currently review preseason games and preview division opponents. That's where yep. we're at right now. That's right. The last one of these, we're going to talk about the Packers game. We're going to talk about uh, the Cardinals. We're going to get into uh, you know maybe a little bit of patriotism, maybe a little bit of sitting, the proper way to sit during the National Anthem, the proper way to stand. Look, we're going to cover it all. <laughs> we're going to get right to it. But first... Of course, we're going to get to the rundown and, hey, roster cuts, probably more important than a couple of other things that have been happening this week. But roster cuts are down to 75 and there are a couple of unique ways the 49ers have got there. One non-unique way, uh, one really shitty way, quite frankly. Um, There's no other way to say it than this is absolutely just spit on your neck, kick you in the nuts shitty, uh, is that Bruce Ellington is on injured reserve with a torn hamstring not even eligible as designated to return because he is all the way on injured reserve, never played a snap. And so he's done for the year shelved. uh, And that is the illustrious end to the only, you know, probably what we predicted is like 50% of the receiving yards that we anticipated for the 49ers. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate on a number of levels. I mean, one, obviously, this was a player that we we both liked, you know, personally and, and thought that he was kind of primed for a breakout year. I mean, we thought that he had kind of a, a pretty clearly defined role within Chip Kelly's offense. And, and we thought uh, that at the very least, you know, he may not be the most productive receiver on the team, but he was going to have a role and he was going to be part of this offense uh, to a much more significant level than he has been during his first couple of years in the league. So. Uh, it, it's really unfortunate. I mean, you look at the rest of that wide receiver group and and we're going to get to them a little bit more uh, later in the episode, but it, it's been very unimpressive so far this preseason. There hasn't been a lot to make you think that this group is going to be able to produce at uh, even a mediocre level. Um, and so to lose like a player from that mix that was had kind of a unique skill set that, that brought a little bit, uh, brought a few things to the table that you don't really find with some of the other guys that are still on the roster... Uh, it's just it's really unfortunate. It sucks. Injuries suck. Yeah, this was someone who, you know, I was super high on. I was thinking about targeting him late in fantasy that, you know, there was definitely some groundswell about Bruce Ellington. I mean, we covered him even in the preseason as a player to watch. And it, it just it's one of those things where the, the the big question mark with Bruce Ellington was he could do some good things if he stays healthy. And there were, there's a couple of ifs, right? I think earlier, you know, we were talking about injuries earlier and you called him Carlos if healthy hide, uh, which I think is a great moncure for him. And Bruce Ellington is the same way. And unfortunately, our worst fears were confirmed with Bruce Ellington at this point where we haven't really, this was an offense that was tailor made to take advantage of his skill set. And now he's going to be on the bench and next year, you know, it's, it's God next year's his fourth year already. Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, this is, was this, this would have been year three. So year four, which is going to be because he was not a first round pick, uh, is going to be the final year of his rookie deal. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, he kind of enters next season, uh, you know, as in a make or break season, so to speak, where 
whatever he does next year is really going to determine whether he gets that second contract with San Francisco or whether he gets even a decent second contract anywhere else, you know? Which is kind of, when you think about it, it's it's almost, it's a little worse for us because we're going to have to operate off of one season's worth of sample, which, you know, to a certain degree is still pretty good, but you'd love to have two consistent years of someone in a system, playing in a system, and, and having production in that system, and and then year three, if the team is able to build properly, they can really lean on that piece, but it is I going mean- to be... Oh, go ahead. I was say the other the other thing that you'd like to have the opportunity to do with that is, you know, if he were to perform well, right? Say things went kind of as we expected them to this year, and he had a pretty solid role within this offense, uh, and, and and he looked pretty good. Like you would like the opportunity to offer him a contract extension next off season. It's somewhat of a reduced rate, right? Like if you if you're you're sold on what you saw from his performance this year. You can offer him an extension, you know, a year early, give him some of that kind of financial security, but maybe lock him up at a rate that's lower than what he would have gotten if he put together a second season, you know, at that level. So you really lose the ability to do that. And you kind of, like you mentioned, have to go on this one season and and kind of hope that it pays off. Uh, So it's just it's unfortunate, again, for a number of reasons with him. No, it's a great point. I think that that's definitely a great point now. That, while that's bad news, definitely a kick you in the nuts kind of thing. There were some other moves. One is that Kenneth Acker was traded to the Chiefs, and that's a for a reported 2018 conditional seventh round pick. The, apparently, Balky has John uh, John Dorsey on speed dial. He's just making <laughs> trades with him. That's that's yeah. the dude. That's the guy. Uh, relationships matter, right? It's not uh, what you know, it's who you know. But Kenneth Acker, I mean, this was a player that played okay last year despite the number of starts don't let the I think he ended up starting 13 games last year uh don't let the number of starts fool you he was an up and down player we both thought last year that Dante Johnson outplayed Kenneth Acker quite a bit and he was on the roster bubble he wasn't going to make the team and at this point Balky flipped them got something for what is effectively nothing and at this point we hope he makes the Chiefs so that we get a seventh rounder yeah I mean this was a guy that what we spent a sixth round pick on initially. Um, so, so you're not even really losing that much value. I mean, it's a couple of years, uh, you know, in, in the future there with that pick, but you know, this was a guy that y- you see these guys cut, you know, these late round picks, six, seventh rounders, you know, cut after a season or two, and it's not really a big deal. And you don't really expect to get any value in return for that. So the fact that there's a, at least a chance that we could get something in return for that pick is, uh, you know, pretty positive, but the the cornerback position just become too crowded. And like you mentioned last year, he did see a lot of starts, but I don't know that he was necessarily worthy of getting those starts. There were, there were players behind him that looked like they might've been performing a little bit better when they got an opportunity. And then all of a sudden you add, you know, some players like Richard Robinson and Will Redmond and Chris Davis starts playing a little bit better throughout the course of this off season and preseason. So uh, you know, it really just become a crowded position and he did nothing to stand out among that group. So not surprising that we moved on from him. Um, a little surprising, though, that we were able to get something in return from him and that he just wasn't a member of the the, the cuts to get to 75. Absolutely. But that wasn't the only kind of player whose tenure ended for the 49ers. It is now the official end to the Brandon Thomas experiment in San Francisco. Team All ACL loses another member to the pyre. That is a bunch <laughs> of what I can only imagine is amputated legs. 
uh, just laying. The night is dark and full of terrors. You know? Absolutely. And, and and the only way to bring light is to literally make a torch out of torn up ACLs. That's, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm, I'm just imagining like ACLs wrapped on the end of like a prosthetic leg that you dip in like oil and then light a flame to light the way. Um, the, the way that lights away from drafting further people with ACLs. Um, because at this point, I mean, it, this is a guy again, he was, uh, Brandon Thomas got, he was a second or third rounder. I forget already. And we never saw him play, uh, out second, of Clemson. Think, right. Yeah. Good Lord. Second I mean, round pick out of Clemson. Uh, and instead, and we traded like three E's for him. We basically traded him for vowels, uh, <laughs> in, in Jeremy Curley. Uh, he Jer- Jeremy Curley, a wide receiver. Uh, and so I saw a stat on Twitter, I think a couple days ago, uh, that said that of the 12 ACL picks that, that bulky has made, we've seen one start. Now I'm lazy and I had a lot of work to do this week. So I haven't verified that stat, but David, I see the warm hue of screen lighting your face which means that you're looking this up right now. I'm not looking uh, that up. I'm looking to see whether Brandon Thomas was a second or third rounder just to, to make sure. I, f- I, I don't feel super confident in... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I you think... Ta- I mean, ago. Tank Carradine at this point, and we're going to get to him in a minute. He's the most promising one, but you think of Marcus Lattimore, never played a game. Um, you think Okay, of, it was I a third think, round pick. Third round pick, 100th round overall. Pick. Um, yeah. A little bit better, but whatever. Yeah, um, you know, you, you think of some of the cornerbacks. I think um, I, I always got Acker and Reeser confused. Uh, so one of them was an ACL pick. Uh, I Reeser. think it was. Yeah, I think it was yeah. Reeser. Um, I mean, basically, you've got you know these ACL picks all around, and none of them have panned out. I, I would argue that that that's not necessarily the ACL strategy failing. I think that there might be more to do with poor projection there because. It's not like these players are are saying, oh, my leg isn't right or, oh, my knee's not okay. They're just not that good at football for whatever reason, at least in this system. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's easy to be frustrated with the, the ACL selection stuff. I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, nothing has really panned out from that. Um, maybe we see Tank Carradine. We're going to talk about him a little bit more later in the episode when we get to kind of some arrow up, arrow down stuff. But I, I think from the Brandon Thomas side of this trade... I don't really have like it's hard to know what to say because we just haven't seen him right like we don't know what he looks like I mean he's played hardly any snaps at any point whether it be the 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 preseason or the regular season like he just has been kind of stuck on this roster not doing anything um and so at least from from the perspective of uh you know an outsider that hasn't been able to see him in practice and and know what he's doing there like I just don't have, I don't know what to say about him. Like it's obviously not surprising that we've moved on because whether it's just that poor of performance or there's something that the, the coaching staff slash front office doesn't like about him. um, You know, who, who knows, but we, we haven't seen him. He's gone. That part's not surprising. The Jeremy Curley stuff makes a lot more sense in light of the Bruce Ellington going on into reserve. Right. Um, At the time, like I had actually seen the trade, which I think the trade news came out, prior to the Ellington yeah. going on IR news. So um, it, it, at the time, the initial time of the trade, like it was a little bit surprising because you're like, oh, wait, this is the like Jeremy Curley does the things that Bruce Ellington's supposed to do. But, you know, now that obviously Ellington's going to be missing the entire season, that trade makes a little bit more sense. Uh, the thing that I don't really know whether is whether there is enough time for Jeremy Curley to make any sort of impact and make this roster right. Like, 
either one, they feel so good about him that, you know, they made the trade and they feel confident that he's going to be a member of the final 53 or B, like, I, I don't know that you really see enough in the fourth preseason game where you're not expecting a lot of the normal starters to be in. So it's harder to evaluate what he's really going to look like in this offense because he's not playing alongside the guys that he would actually be playing alongside of in the regular season. So to, to put a fine point on the all ACL team, I, I was able to look up 2013, 14 and 15, and you've got 2013 tank Carradine second round, Marcus Lattimore, fourth round, 2014, Brandon Thomas in the third round, Reeser in the fifth round, uh, and Trey Millard in the seventh round. And then in 2015, it was DeAndre Smelter in the fourth round. Uh, so none of those players outside of Tank Carradine uh, really is looking super promising. Keith Reeser looks like a backup this year. Trey Millard, uh, you know, Trey who at this point, and DeAndre Smelter is another one who it seems a little liffy this year at best. So you've uh, it's definitely an interesting strategy. While the strategy makes logical sense, it hasn't seemed to pan out. And uh, And so, yeah, so here we are. Brandon Thomas gone. Glad that we at least got someone for him, even if there's there's a, we we kind of got rid of Eric Pierce, uh, which we'll talk about here when we get the roster. Oh, cuts, we but now didn't we've got, kind of get rid of it. We definitely got rid of him, which is. But now we've got fantastic. Jeremy Curley, Carely. Um, I was really Curley. hoping you were going to come on and say Carely. I really did. Come on, I know, but I was hoping that you would like just mess it up. Just I mean, for he has like sake. 17 E's in that name, though. Like it's 50 percent E's. <laughs> Like, he has an extra E in Jeremy for no reason at all, because that's the thing people do with names is just insert letters randomly. Um, so, yeah, I, I, there's there's a lot of E's when you look at that name on paper. But, of course, those were the notable kind of cuts or moves on to injured reserve or trades. But it was, of course, a day of cuts. You're down to 75 players, and to do that, the 49ers have cut Eric Pierce pairs. We're going to go ahead and say Pierce Pairs as often as we Pierce Pairs can because this is going to be the last time I'm going we can with say pairs. Pierce Pairs. It's spelled Pairs. I don't care anymore. We're not <laughs> never going to speak his name after this episode. From now on, it is Eric Pairs. And Eric, you're welcome for pronouncing your name correctly because I don't know why you decided to make up your own words because that's not how English works. And then you've got Blake Muir, offensive line, Ian Silberman, offensive line, tight end Busta Anderson, part of the all-name team. We're sad to see you go. Jerome Simpson, uh, DeAndre Campbell, Kendall Gaskins, Darren Lake, John Lunsford, Winton McManus, Cleveland Wallace, and Eric Rogers was officially placed on injured reserve. That gets you down to 75. If you were wondering who about 50% of those players are, you're okay. That you should be wondering that at this point. These are players that were likely not going to make the roster unless something catastrophic happened. And there really are no surprises here. Most of the surprises were going to be at the top of the uh, the list with Acker, Thomas, and Ellington. Yeah, I mean, again, that's my biggest takeaway for sure is that there's not a single name on this list that that, that really is a surprise. I mean... I think what I would look at is, do you see any names like in the next round of cuts, right? Right. Obviously, we get to 53 next. Um, is there anybody that you think could be a surprise? Like right now, all of those names are expected, right? There's not a single one that I'm like, oh, maybe they should have thought about keeping that guy. Like it like every one of those moves makes sense. Um is there anybody left that you think might be kind of a surprise cut or, or do you think it's, you know, the next round is pretty similar to this one? I think the next round is going to be mostly similar. I think there will be some positions where you've got some battles, right? I think when you think of the defensive line, you've got Ronald Blair, you know, you've got someone who's like Tony Gerard Eddy, who's versatile, 
But that position group as a whole, not that Blair and TJE do similar things within the scheme, but you're running out of roster space at this point. You know, I think you've got, you know, you obviously cut BJ McBride, you cut Demetrius Cherry, but now you've got Glenn Dorsey, Quentin Dial, Mike Purcell, DeForest Buckner, Eric Armstead, Tony Girardetti, Ronald Blair. We know Eric Armstead has a shoulder injury. Does that mean that maybe you keep someone who can play more of a traditional, you know, heads up kind of four technique and you forego someone like a Ronald Blair who can maybe move around the field a bit more simply because you're anticipating maybe some missed games? I think there's some interesting decisions there. So I would look at one of the deeper positions as perhaps a surprise cut. I think maybe fans are going to be surprised to see Bruce Miller cut, but I fully expect Bruce Miller to be cut and he should be. Yeah, so that was um, actually one that I was going to bring up is is actually a surprise that he wasn't cut now, right? Because a lot of times you'll see during this this first round of cuts, if you are going to move on from veteran players, right, you kind of give them the courtesy of, all right, we don't think you're going to make this team. Like, it really doesn't seem like a good fit. We're going to let we're going to move on from you now. So you have a better opportunity to sign on with another team. And you kind of do them that courtesy, right? Like. The fact that they didn't release Bruce Miller right now uh, is is a little strange to me because, I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I still think that he probably gets uh, included in the next round of cuts. But you have three tight ends that I think are pretty clearly better than him at this point. And that's Vance McDonald, Garrett Selleck and Blake Bell. Like, I don't really see how you can make an argument for keeping Bruce Miller over one of those three guys. I mean, we've we've seen it, right? Like, we finally got a chance to see Bruce Miller uh, get get a, a pass attempt downfield, and it was exactly what you expected, right? He just didn't look comfortable. Like, he didn't look comfortable making an adjustment on a pass, um, and this is because we haven't seen him. He hasn't had to do this at any point in his career. All of the receptions that he's had, with the exception of, like, three targets, have been within five yards of the line of scrimmage. Like, he catches passes in the flat. And that is very different from catching passes downfield in a tight end role. So I, I, I just don't see how you can make an argument for him staying over one of those other three tight ends. Um, and it, it's a little surprising to me that because, you know, they seem to think highly of him as a player and, you know, as his general like football ability, whether or not he fits on this team or not. Um, I, I kind of expected him to be in this first round of cuts here. I, I will not I, I'm less sold on him being cut right away because I do think there's a decent chance he makes the roster. And by decent, I say 40 to 40, like 40 to 50 percent, I think, a chance that he makes the roster simply because of special teams. That That's the only reason I think he makes the yeah. roster and because he offers some semblance of positional versatility. If you look at the way we've deployed our tight ends over the course of the first three preseason games, Vance and Garrick. Garrick, Jesus, Garrett, <laughs> uh, play. They play. Uh, they played a lot of snaps together. We played some two tight end sets, and that makes sense. If you have two tight ends who can catch the ball and one wide receiver who can catch the ball, then there are your three wide receivers at some point. Vance is going to play split out, and Garrett might play in line. So I could see a world in which if you're going to be playing two tight ends a lot, you're going to need another one tight end to kind of fill in that role, which is Blake Bell, and then maybe another emergency tight end slash special special teamer in Bruce Miller. So I, I do think there is more value there than we might than, than with some other kind of rando scrub who fits in the third percentile 
um, of tight ends, which is what his body type fits into. Um, but but I don't know. I, but I still think that he should get cut at the end of the day. So. But yeah, I mean, I'd have to, I think, look a little closer at who's going to be kind of right there on the bubble in those final 53 um, to, to, to know whether like he should be kept over, say, another receiver, or another cornerback or another outside linebacker or something like that. Right. Like, uh, yep. I, I think that stuff's going to be pretty close. But when it comes to at least his offensive contributions, like it's hard to see him barring just catastrophic injury at that position, having any sort of role, because I mean, like you mentioned there, 11 and 12 personnel is where Kelly lives. 95% of the snaps this season will come out of either 11 or 12 personnel, which is either, uh, you know, three receivers, one tight end or two receivers, two tight ends. Like, that's where we live now. That's that's what this offense is going to look like. And so I, I just don't see how Bruce Miller fits into that again with uh, with what his skill set is and what Chip Kelly asks his tight ends to do within this offense. Um, I, I just don't see that match there. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to come down to, I think, between him. Is, is, does he have more value as a special teamer and, you know, potential backup tight end slash H-back, whatever, or, you know, do you get more value out of an extra defensive lineman or an extra cornerback, which seem to be the deepest position groups on this team right now? So plot twist, the team has special packages near and around the goal line or short yardage that involve Bruce Miller as a fullback. And that's why they're keeping him. We can I go mean, ahead and leave that. We can leave that there. We don't need to get too far into it. But seems like some ginger preferential treatment to me. I don't think he deserves that. He doesn't deserve Bruce Miller doesn't deserve special packages. <laughs> All right. Well, I think really the only other thing that there's two other kind of correlated items on on the rundown, one of which uh, I was, uh, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some of this Colin Kaepernick protest stuff. And uh, I know that Dave, I actually looked at my wife uh, when this story broke and we were talking <laughs> about the show and I was like, I can guarantee you that David's exact phrase is going to be, I don't want to spend a lot of time here. And as we're working <laughs> collaboratively on this agenda, um, I, I look at this at the cat part and it's literally a note from David and he goes, I prefer not to spend much time here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're not going to, this isn't going to be the focal point of the episode, but I, I do want to reference it and, and note it because I feel like it is important. It's generated a lot of discussion it's something that's kind of transcended football at this point. And, and so I think that it, it's important to, to, to discuss on a show that it's about discussing things, right? So, David, I'll kick it over to you first. Um, as someone who has quite literally served our country and, as you say, it played Army, uh, what are your thoughts on this whole cap sitting as a protest? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have a lot to say that hasn't been said at this point. I mean, I think coming from the perspective of, again, a veteran, somebody that has uh, served a tour overseas, like, I, I think that if you're somebody that is upset at this silent protest, like, you're confusing what it is, you know, that that we're really protecting when it comes to, you know, if you're, if you're a veteran, right, what are you protecting? It, it's things like the right to peacefully protest. It's not, you're not protecting an old tradition to stand up for a national anthem, right? Who gives a shit about that? Like you're not protecting, you can in any country 
basically, uh, you know, sit here and, and say how much you love the country and, and, and just kind of drink all the Kool-Aid, right, and say how great things are. Like, North Korea is going to let you do that. You can do that anywhere, right? What separates America and what makes us kind of unique, at least, you know, it, I guess ideally, is the right to do these sort of things, the right to peacefully protest. And, and so I, I don't know that that's the perspective of the majority of veterans. I mean, I know we've seen, thankfully, it, w- it was really great to see this kind of veterans for Kaepernick uh, trend go through and, and get to see a lot of comments there. I, I thought that was really cool. But it certainly doesn't seem to be the majority opinion among veterans um, and, and that's kind of where I think a lot of the, the, the backlash has come from, from this. And you saw a lot of the comments, you know, Mike Freeman had an article about, uh, talking to seven NFL executives and, and, and them thinking essentially 90 to 95% of teams don't want anything to do with this guy. And that he's a bigger problem than Ray Ruth, which just seems insane to me. Like if you really love your country, this is the, these are the sort of things that you want to protect is, is p- people's right to do this stuff like it's not about loving the flag loving america and and overlooking the the different issues that are facing it so i don't know again most of this has been said i i don't really have you know a unique take by any means but that's that's kind of all that i would really say about it at this point ray caruth for the uninitiated is someone who i believe killed his pregnant girlfriend correct Um, so at this point, and I think this is interesting to note, right? You've got NFL execs who are saying, I'd rather have a guy who beats his girlfriend, beats his wife, or kills his pregnant girlfriend than I would have someone who chose to sit during a national anthem um, and then have the media kind of you know, jump on it and, and make it a thing. So I think that tells you more about the state of, of the world than, than a lot. And you know, for me, it's, and I think I tweeted this out when, when about it happened, it's that Freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of freedom to speak the speech I want to hear or freedom to speak the things that I agree with. The The truest test of freedom of speech, as uncomfortable as it may be, is allowing a KKK march down Main Street in whatever town you're in, right? Like that, you, you need to be able to allow that just as much as you're able to allow all of the other positive things because that's what living in a democracy with true freedom of speech looks like. And, you know, you mentioned North Korea. Of course, this is where coercion and forced patriotism exists. We've seen these things happen. And and so I, whether or not you agree or disagree with how he's going about doing it, my only thought and my only hope is that you focus less on what he's doing and rather why he's doing it. Because there, there is something that, that he is putting something on the line. And whether or not you are going to agree or disagree with how he's chosen to put it on the line, there are people that would not endorse someone like him. He's potentially committing career suicide if Freeman's article is true about you know f- front offices not wanting to, to deal with this issue. This is someone who is speaking about something that he believes in. And it doesn't mean that you have to believe in that thing, but I think we as Americans and we as humans should put the effort in to understand what that is. I had a coworker who reached out to me from London who, you know, kind of likes the NFL and, and passively listens to and watches it. And he was like, oh my God, can you believe what Colin Kaepernick is doing? I think he's going about it the wrong way. 
And, and I said, you're talking to me about it, aren't you? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, mission accomplished. You're like, we can now talk about racism and the ways in which people feel that the system is racist. And, and that is a discussion that too often goes ignored. And he's bringing that conversation to the forefront. And, and I wonder whether or not people you know, who are bashing him also had Muhammad Ali posters in their dorm room or people who bash him are going to say, oh, but, you know, the protest with, you know, holding a fist up in the air during the Olympics, that was noble. That was cool. You know, or people who love Jackie Robinson and, you know, someone who was also outspoken against the national anthem because it has some racial overtones and verses that have been omitted. It, it, it's it's something that, you know, I understand. I wouldn't necessarily take that protest stance, but I think the real question that we should be asking ourselves is why? Why do people across the country feel that this is important? And I think once we begin to grapple with that, and it's not an easy answer, it's not an easy, it's not an easy discussion to have, and we're not going to have it on the show. This is the last we're probably going to talk about it unless he gets cut as a result, right? Which is, I think, the next question. But I think instead of reacting with hate and vitriol and, and thinking about, why it's wrong, think about why he's doing it and why the world is compelling someone to take this kind of a stand. And I think if we look at the problem that way, I think if we look at it from a seek to understand, not a seek to correct kind of frame of mind, then things become a bit easier to understand. And, and I think that's all that that's all I would ask of folks who listen to us is just you know, I'm not saying you have to agree with it because, again, that's the similar type of coercion that we are not advocating here. But rather, just ask why. Be informed. Read up. Think about why he's doing it. Process your own information and, and kind of go from there. And, and I think that's, that's about where we'll leave it. Um, I, I think the interesting corollary to this is whether or not Colin Kaepernick will get cut. Because this story came up. This story came out. It's one thing, right? But then there's this other story that came out from Jason Cole, I think it was. Um, it was Jason Cole or Jay Glazer. I forget. Jay, Jay Glazer. And so this was actually the reason that I somewhat take this seriously, right? Like if it was Jason Cole and he was the only buddy that was the only person that was reporting this, I wouldn't even give it a second thought, right? That's right. Jason Cole's the guy who said that, uh, that Patrick Willis was going to come out of retirement. Yeah. Like um, yeah. His, his reports are... I don't know. I don't even know how that dude has a job. Like it, it feels like nothing he say is actually accurate. But Jay Glazer is somebody that doesn't. He's he's not a, a volume reporter, right? Like he doesn't just spit out a bunch of stuff and 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 kind of look to generate clicks. Like usually when Jay Glazer comes out and reports something, it it ends up being true. Like he he usually is pretty spot on. I mean, he was somebody that was on top of the Harbaugh thing early in terms of the 49ers looking to get rid of him. Um, he He's generally pretty accurate with this stuff. So that was the thing that grabbed my attention because normally if you, if you didn't have somebody like that saying that there was a, a possibility that Kaepernick was going to be cut, I would say that the likelihood that, uh, of it actually happening is really low and that, you know, what the team and, uh, the the league would really try to do is is just kind of ignore it, let it blow over, see if you know, hope it goes away essentially, uh, and and just try not to to pay too much attention to it. But the fact that you're seeing somebody like Glazer mention that yeah, he might not be on the team in a week, uh, really kind of you know jars your attention a little bit. Like 
I don't know. I, I still think I lean more towards him not being cut. I mean, you, you heard Chip Kelly this week talk about how he is one of the two best quarterbacks on this team, but he's not making the decision, right? Like we, we know that this front office looked to make Kaepernick the scapegoat last year and, and kind of put a lot of the, the blame for that poor season on him and, and leak some stuff about him within the media um, which wasn't surprising at the time. And, and so if, if Trent Balky doesn't like him and, and, you know, this front office doesn't want him around, this could really be the thing that gives them the kind of justification in their mind to get rid of him. But I, I don't know. I, I, I still think that he ends up making this 53 man roster. I do too. And, and to put a finer point on the Glazer report, he said that Colin Kaepernick would be cut for football reasons. Like that, that, that I think was, that was the exact headline. So it wasn't that he was going to be cut as a result of his protest, but rather that just on the football field, he was not performing such to the degree that he could also get cut. And then perhaps this just adds fuel to that fire. Um, yeah, again, I, all, all I will say about the whole will cap get cut is that if this is a consideration, I think it's interesting that Chip Kelly, who's very specific and precise with his words and who's very quick with his wit at press conferences, said, one, Cap is one of the two best quarterbacks on the team, and two, I don't make that decision. Because to me, that puts that firmly in the lap of Trent Baalke. And I'm, if I'm Chip Kelly, like, that's absolutely my stance, right? Like, I think he is 100% accurate in both of those statements, right? Like that, that he, there's no way that you can argue that Jeff Driscoll or Christian Ponder is a better option at quarterback than Colin Kaepernick at this point. Like it's just a, a, a silly argument to make. Like there's, he's absolutely one of the two best options there. In my opinion, like if he, and, and I guess let's pivot to the actual football stuff, right? When we get into this Packers review and, and we start looking at the football side of this and whether Colin Kaepernick deserves to be on this roster. You know, this was the first opportunity that we had to see him in, in, in quite a while. I mean, it was midway through last season uh, when he was injured slash benched for, for Blaine Gabbert midway through the year. Um, and, you know, again, we spent a lot of time talking about Colin Kaepernick on this show. Like, we spent a lot of time talking about where things have gone wrong with him and, and kind of some of the issues that he's struggled with in the last two seasons. But I, I think for if you were to play this season out, right, if you play the 2016 season out a thousand times with each quarterback option, right? Like which quarterback has the most successful seasons? I think it would be hard to say that that option isn't Colin Kaepernick, right? Like he definitely has the highest upside of any option within this quarterback group. Um, in terms of his performance in this specific game, I mean, it, there was a lot of rust. I mean, as expected for a guy that hasn't played in a while, he didn't look great. Uh, he looked, you know, uncomfortable in the pocket. Like a lot of his throws weren't accurate. He got nearly baited into an interception by, by, uh, shields, you know, over on the left side on the smash concept there where shields kind of made him think that he was coming up on the, the the short in route there and really jumped the corner out behind it and Colin Kaepernick fell for it like there were a lot of things where he just didn't look right but I don't know that you can judge a guy based on I think it was 16 snaps in a preseason game in the first time that he's played uh in you know half a season or more 
So I, w- I would say that I don't disagree with you. I expected rust. I tweeted that out earlier. I said, look, I expect the guy to be rusty, um, especially since, you know, he's got he had a shoulder surgery and sure it was to his non-throwing shoulder and then he had shoulder fatigue. I mean, th- there's a bit of getting back into that 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 needs to be considered. I, I was most concerned with his interceptable passes. He converted one third down, but that third down that he converted was not a great throw. It was not yeah. a great decision. Yeah. And, and so, again, another instance where just because you complete a pass doesn't mean it was a good decision or a good throw. That is, I think, what concerned me. Um, it, you know, it concerned me that he made a, a questionable decision on the zone read that he did keep. Um, I, I don't know that he's been as successful on zone reads over the last couple of years as he was initially. And I think that's partly because the NFL has has caught up a little bit. But you know that you can still find success with that play. I mean, how Gabbert had like a 16 yard run. Uh, I don't think it was in this game. I think it was last week um, on on a zone read. So you know, there's still yardage to be had there. My, I I I, I totally agree. There's a rust factor there. There's a decision making factor there. Um, but to a certain degree, the the thing that worries me is that this is we've seen this cap before. This is the 20 late 2014, 2015 Kaepernick. Um, and so I, I don't know. It would be easy for me to understand that this isn't rust and this is just confirmation of the way that he was last year. And I think there's there's more to see. I think the fourth preseason game is going to be interesting because he's going to play a lot of snaps. He is going to play snaps against players that may or may not be on an NFL roster in a week. And he's going to be facing a defense that won't be necessarily game planning for him. In other words, he's going to have an opportunity to be like, okay, you had a pretty solid game there. You did okay. And and if he comes out and plays abysmal in preseason game four, where he's going to get his most extensive snaps of the season... Granted, again, still small sample size, but you, you you begin to think there, what the hell is going on? Yeah, I think the tough thing with with really paying attention to much of what he does in this final preseason game is the fact that he's likely not going to be surrounded by starting players, right? Like he's he's not going to spend a lot of time playing with the ones. Like it's mostly going to be backups. It's going to be a backup offensive line. It's going to be you know, backup skill position players. He's going to be playing against a backup defense. Um, I just don't know how much you can take away from that sort of performance. And I think when you're comparing Colin Kaepernick and Blaine Gabbert, right, if you're looking purely from a football standpoint and and you're removing these sort of other off-field factors, um, they came out in the same exact draft you have to consider for players that have been in for this long, the, the, the entire sample that you're dealing with. Right. And we know what things look like with Colin Kaepernick as a good quarterback. Like we've seen him be a quality quarterback in 2012 and 2013. There's no, like there's been, I feel like there's been this kind of movement to say that Colin Kaepernick was never any good. And that's it's that re- revisionist history is yeah, what that is. And, and that's just simply not true. If you go back and watch those 2012 games or watch some of the 2013 games, like were there flaws there? Sure. Like when we've talked about, you know, about them quite a bit, like he's never been a player that has been super comfortable in the pocket and is able to make kind of these subtle movements there. He's never been uh, a player that's super accurate on short throws. But when you go back and look at those early games, like, 
accuracy wasn't a problem down the field. You know, when you look at the, the, the throws that he made beyond 10, 15 yards down the field, like accuracy was not a problem there. And then suddenly now over the last season, season and a half, that's become more of an issue. So things that were strengths early and, and things where he was clearly very good at early have kind of deteriorated a little bit. And, and that's contributed to his performance over the last season, season and a half there. But when you're looking at the, the, the total sample, right, of his career versus Blaine Gabbert's career, the, what they've accomplished in this league, like there's no question that Colin Kaepernick has shown that he can perform at a higher level than Blaine Gabbert. Blaine Gabbert over, you know, before he got to San Francisco was arguably one of the, if not the worst starting quarterback in NFL history by a lot of metrics. Like he was awful. And you can't just set that aside and say that, okay, now that he's improved a little bit, that that, that just means he's gone from, okay, maybe the worst quarterback in NFL history to one of the worst quarterbacks in NFL history. Like it's, yeah, sure. That's better. I guess if you want to make that argument, but it's still not good. And we still don't have a stretch of time to say that, okay, Blaine Gabbert's played at a high level. We know that he can perform uh, in an average or better level with Colin Kaepernick. We do have that. And, and I think, you know, the most realistic outcomes with either of these guys aren't very good. I, I, this quarterback situation is not very good in general, but if you have to pick one of those two, I think Colin Kaepernick clearly has higher upside, especially in a system that if you were to take 2012 Colin Kaepernick and put him in Chip Kelly's offense, like the, the dude's an MVP candidate. It, it fits what he does or what he did do well to a T, right? It's the downfield throws. Uh, it's obviously the running game stuff and the zone read and the run pass options, things that he's familiar with from college. Uh, it, it really fits what he should do well. It's just, you know, we don't know exactly what player he's going to be co- going for. We don't know whether he can be and get back to that 2012-2013 or whether the 2014-2015 Colin Kaepernick that we've seen is what's there to stay forever. Well, there's another individual performance that I thought was going to be very interesting, and that was going to be Anthony Davis. He is someone who was kicked inside the guard, and Trent Brown has basically locked down the starting right tackle spot. And at this point, it looks like Anthony Davis is going to lock down the starting right guard spot. But the question really is how good he looked at that right guard position. This is someone we thought was going to win the right tackle spot, no question. And now he's kicking in the guard. And by and large, returns were pretty positive. I mean, this is someone who is a starting quality offensive lineman on what was at one point one of the best offensive lines in football. So there's talent there. And it showed off at guard. His quick feet are still quick, whether or not he's inside or outside. And I do think it's, you know, it's kind of crappy for Andrew Tiller because I think that Andrew Tiller is a starting quality guard. But at this point, we've got a starting quality guard on the bench. And now really what's left is going to be a battle for the left guard spot between Zane Beatles and Joshua Garnett. Yeah, I think for for a player in Anthony Davis that hasn't played guard since, you know, early in his college career, I think it's been like nine seasons or something like that since the guys lined up at guard um, for his first game action. I thought he looked really good. Um, you know, there were there were a few plays there where Mike Daniels kind of got the better of him uh, right actually shortly after Colin Kaepernick got into the game. Um, but Mike Daniels is, you know, a fantastic defensive tackle and and, and you really can't you know, put too much blame on Anthony Davis in those situations. So, I, you know, I think overall he looked really good. I think he looked good in the run game, looked good in the pass game. Like, 
it, it was for his first performance at that position in game action in the NFL. Like it was hard not to be impressed. And so I think when you look at the, you know, best five, we talked about this last week, like, okay, how is this going to shake out? Are we better off having Anthony Davis at guard and Trent Brown at tackle? Or are we better off having Anthony Davis at tackle? And then somebody like Andrew Tiller, or Josh Garnett, uh, at one of the guard spots, I, I think right now, if I had to pick a starting five, obviously Joe Staley at left tackle. I think you get Josh Garnett at left guard, Daniel Kilgore at center, Anthony Davis at right guard, Trent Brown at, at right tackle. I think that's your starting five. I think that's the best five that you can put out there. Um, and that gives you some flexibility, right? You have players like you mentioned with uh, with Tiller and, and Beatles being interior options there, being backups um, that are decent options, right? Like, I, I don't think either of them are great players or, um, you know, somebody that they would be for sure starters if they were to go to another team or anything like that. But they're players that you can insert in there if you, you have an injury at the position and not feel super terrible about. So overall, it, it, this offensive line, it's just hard not to feel a lot better about this position group uh compared to last year and and it's a little weird that they've you know potentially been able to make such a big improvement in such a short period of time well i will say this about anthony davis he got right tackle money and now is playing right guard and we know that average salaries for tackles are quite a bit higher than right guard so you know what good for you dude yep. getting that tackle money playing yep. guard so let's get to some of the other players that played well during the preseason game against the Packers. We're talking about the arrow up players that we saw. We've got three for you uh, this week, and then we've got some arrow down players as well. But our first arrow up player is going to be Will Redmond. He finally got a chance to see the field after coming back. Of course, he had a torn ACL, another person on that all ACL team. But hey, this one's actually not going to sit out a season. And, uh, and he finally got a chance to see the field. And he looked pretty good. He had 18 total snaps. He wasn't targeted in coverage, but he played in the slot. And it was a good comparison to someone like Chris Davis. But he picked up a sack, a couple stops in the run game. This is someone who definitely got his nose in when he needed to. And, and again, this is a third-round pick. So it's not like he's expected to be a bench warmer. This is someone that Trent Baalke thought could come in and, and produce. And at least initial returns off of 18 snaps are fairly positive. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly going to be on the roster. You know, uh, you just don't cut third round picks uh, in, in their rookie season. So I think the the question becomes what you alluded to a little bit is, does he eventually challenge Chris Davis for that primary slot cornerback role? I mean, I think we've both been uh, pretty high on Chris Davis during this preseason and, and thought he's looked generally pretty good. We're going to spend a little bit more time on his game uh, against the Packers uh, here in the arrow down section. But Generally, Chris Davis has been pretty good throughout this preseason um, and, and seems to be the starting nickel cornerback there uh, to begin the season, at least. So that's really the question is, does he eventually supplant Chris Davis in that role or it, does he kind of end up having to wait until next season? Because I don't know if, if he doesn't fit in that slot corner role. I don't know where exactly he fits because I don't like him quite as much outside. Um but I think he has kind of that short area quickness and, and the agility to play well on the inside of the, you know, in the, in the slot role there. So uh, when you looked at his college tape, that really seemed to be kind of the best fit for him. And that's where I think he can uh, best potentially make an, an impact early on in this season. So 
I, I don't know. I don't know if it if it happens right away. I mean, I think they do roll with Chris Davis uh, to begin the season, but Will Redmond's going to be on the team, and I think he's going to push for reps if, if he stays healthy. Yeah, I, I do think that he will do that, and I think he'll probably star on special teams initially, and then I think you know whether it be later this year or next year, you're going to see him compete for some playing time, most definitely. The next player in the arrow up area is someone who is, you know, we might as well just call this the the arrow up Tank Carradine section of the show. Because <laughs> I think this is the, the, the third week straight that Tank Carradine has met the, the, really the arrow up criteria, which is he's dominated against inferior competition. He is doing his job well. And as an outside pass rusher, he had a sack, a few other quarterback pressures. He's looked better each week against the run. And at this point, it looks like he was definitely miscast as that you know five technique or four technique defensive uh, tackle and now he's in his more natural position at a more natural playing weight and he's playing well he's doing the things that we thought that Eli hashtag smoothie power Harold would do and I'm glad somebody's doing it because someone's going to need to do it because we need someone on the outside edge and lo and behold it's one Mr. All ACL team Tank Carradine. I mean, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that we haven't uh, necessarily had a high opinion of Tank Carradine and, and his play since he's been in the NFL. But I think that while his performance in the preseason isn't necessarily enough to uh, completely change my opinion of him based on what he's done in actual regular game action, uh, it's certainly encouraging. Like I, I, I do feel more optimistic about his ability uh, to potentially contribute this season. I still want to see it, you know, consistently against the ones, you know, in regular season action, like all of those, those preseason caveats there. I, I want to see him do it when it really matters, but it, it it would be hard to argue that he hasn't had one of the more impressive preseasons among any, any 49ers player this year. So I, I think you have to give him some credit. Again, he's been consistently able to pressure the quarterback against kind of the twos and threes when he's gotten in there. Um, the run game was always been an issue. Like when he was playing defensive end, he consistently seemed overmatched against the run. In the first preseason game, he got moved out of the way a, a, a good amount in the run game. But each week has gotten a little bit better. And I think this last week, he was actually pretty impressive in in, in the run game. And that's going to be a big part of whether he can stay on the field as an outside linebacker. So yeah, I think he's, he's very clearly an arrow up player still need to see it from him in the regular season before I'm going to be convinced that he can kind of sustain that level of play for the long term. But it, it's certainly encouraging that the, the position change seems to be a positive for him. Couple of other arrow up players. One is going to be Ray Ray Armstrong. I think he is pretty much locked down the starting gig at this point. And, and if he's not the primary starter, then I would be surprised Another player, Ronald Blair, we mentioned him earlier. Again, someone who is just another high P-spark, a really like kind of good athlete that is being used in multiple locations. It's going to be interesting to see if he makes the final 53. I think he should, but at whom else's cost? So let's get to Arrow Down and Chris Davis. Man, he had a rough outing against Randall Cobb. And, and you know what? That's not unusual. People just generally tend to have bad outings against Randall Cobb and <laughs> You know, I think yeah. really it, it, you think of what happened with that that out route where, you know what, Aaron Rodgers just popped, threw it out. It's one-on-one Chris Davis and Randall Cobb, and he just puts his foot in the ground, cuts back inside, and Chris Davis falls and just kind of flails. You know, that's that's going to happen 
Um, it, it is, but that wasn't the only time that, that 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 happened to Chris Davis. And you know, this just kind of goes to show that yes, you you might have some good performances, but when you go up against elite competition, you know, th- th- things are a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, obviously, struggling against Randall Cobb uh, isn't an unusual thing like it it happens to a lot of cornerbacks out there but what we saw in a limited sample were you know three targets against chris davis while he was in coverage on Randall cobb uh cobb caught all three of those passes you know yeah he, he had uh cobb had davis falling down on like a deep crossing route on an over route there uh in the middle of the field that led to a pretty solid play you mentioned the uh, the touchdown play there where he kind of over-pursued in the flat and took a bad angle, and, and Cobb was able to cut back and get upfield uh, and get into the end zone. And, you know, I, I don't know that this necessarily uh, changes the, the overall outlook that we had on him from his, you know, otherwise great performance in the first couple of preseason games, but I think it goes to show that you need to set realistic expectations, right? Like, it's about setting proper expectations with these players, and while... We think there is a, a decent amount of talent within the secondary and at the cornerback position. These guys are all young. Like it's going to take some time for them to really uh, kind of establish themselves and become consistent players. And uh, I think Chris Davis, especially, you know, we haven't seen him in, in a lot of regular season action. Um, and while I think that he is going to have that starting job entering the season and, and probably be able to keep that for most of the year, uh, it's it's not going to be unusual to see him struggle against top end competition like somebody like Randall Cobb. So I uh, need to set realist, realistic expectations. Like he's not going to be a shutdown guy in the slot, I think, at least right away. Um, and, and so for somebody that's had a very impressive preseason, this was definitely his worst outing and it wasn't terribly surprising to see it. So the next arrow down is going to be a collective group. This might be the first time we've had a collective group on the arrow down section. We'll, we're going to have to look at our fact checkers to see if that's actually the case. Um, hint, we have no fact checkers. <laughs> uh, but it's going to be the entire wide receiver group. At this point, no one has stood out. I, I could argue, I can make a decent argument that in the preseason, Jerome Simpson was the biggest standout against twos and threes, and he is no longer on the roster. So this is really a wide receiver group with Torrey Smith, the number one, having one whole target. Bruce Ellington with a torn hamstring who's on injured reserve. At this point, I'm just hoping there's enough room for Devin Kajus to come on because, you know what? If you're going to have anyone play, might as well have people who are huge athletes play. Um, because at this point, you're trying to throw spaghetti up against the wall and hoping that one of them turns into a wide receiver and sticks. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there been nobody that you can feel good about. I mean, even Torrey Smith, who is is very clearly the best player among this group, and, and we do expect to see, you know, a good number of targets come the regular season once they're actually into their normal offense. Uh, like, nobody else is, is really uh, giving you anything to be excited about. I mean, I think we hoped when the preseason started that you would have Bruce Ellington emerged that you would have somebody like DeAndre Smelter, Eric Rogers emerge. Now two of those players are on IR. Uh, Smelter hasn't played at all. And, and you don't know what he's going to be able to do this season. And everybody else that's left hasn't looked any good. So uh, while I think that this offense will very clearly be better than it was last year, just because it would be hard to be worse. 
uh, and they're having a consistent system and like having a competent offensive coach is going to to improve things a little bit. Like it's hard to expect this group to be good because they just don't have a lot of skill position talent. The the quarterback issues that we've mentioned at length, like th- those aren't going away anytime soon. It's just hard to see this passing offense uh, get to a point where they can be even mediocre. Like just every part of it is struggling at this point. Well, at this point you're looking at keeping six wide receivers. And if you look at Quentin Patton, Torrey Smith, and now I think D'Andrew white, who's the next man up at slot are basically, you know, kind of Well, I mean, Quentin Patton and Torrey Smith are really the only locks at this point. D'Andrew white, I think makes three Andrew Sm- or DeAndre Smelter makes four because you don't cut your first player fourth round pick. Now you really got Chip Kelly offenses usually keep six. You've got two spots for Aaron Burbridge, Bryce Treggs, Dre Anderson, and Devin Kajust. And I would Jeremy argue Curley. That, oh, yeah, that's right. Jeremy Curley. I forgot. I, I would argue that Aaron Burbridge is arguably a lock based on the fact that we spent a six-round pick. And while sure, uh, it, it's definitely no lock that a six-round pick makes it. I think that that gives him a little bump compared to Kajust, which was an undrafted free agent. Uh, and, you know, so I would say at this point, it's probably Burbridge and Jeremy Curley who rounded out at that point, and uh, and that's your wide receiver core, and that's that's a whole lot of nothing. That's a whole lot of nothing. Yeah, I don't know how you can be excited about any of those guys. I mean, Torrey Smith, maybe, again, if, if you can convince Blaine Gabbert to throw the ball downfield, then maybe he can be something. I mean, it should, at least based on the, kind of the target history in Chip Kelly's offense, um, he should see a good number of targets and he should have an opportunity to get some one-on-one matchups on the outside. But I, I, I mean, Blaine Gabbert hasn't shown that he is comfortable making those throws deep down the field on the outside. So in, until we see that, like it's hard to, to expect much from Torrey Smith and everybody else is a complete unknown at this point. Like there's no reason to expect any of these guys to break out. They haven't shown anything to make you believe that that should be, the most probable outcome. Uh, it's it's going to be rough. I mean, uh, I think this passing offense is going to struggle quite a bit. And the, this is hopefully something that they're going to look to address, you know, pretty heavily next offseason. So let's switch gears a bit then. And let's talk about the other half of the episode, which is going to be really the other one third of the episode, which is going to be the season preview with the Cardinals coming up next. Uh, that's going to be the next piece of the show. So let's go ahead and cut to a pre-recorded interview that we have with one Mr. Blake Murphy from Revenge of the Birds at Blake Murphy Seven. Uh, and so we'll uh, we'll preview the Cardinals, see what's going on there, see if Carson Palmer will actually survive a season, uh, and then come back and round out the show. One word of caution: We recorded this with what we thought was a tool that would solve all of our problems, and that was Zencaster. And it almost did, kind of, sort of, until it didn't. Uh, I recorded this entire interview with my audio being recorded by my iMac mic, which pretty much sounds like shit. So if you want to skip ahead, uh, skip ahead about 30 minutes from now, and you'll skip all the cardinal bullshit and any terrible audio quality. Um, I would say, by and large, Blake and David sound decent. I, on the other hand, sound like absolute dog shit. So, if you want to skip that terrible assault on your ears, feel free. Uh, If you're okay with the masochism because you want the information, feel free to strap in 
and go ahead and listen to the rest of this episode. It's actually a pretty good interview, which is why I'm a little frustrated and it sucks. But on the bright side, now that the regular season is going to be starting, we get back to a regular season podcast where we don't have to fuck with some more audio shit. So feel free to, to tune in and listen to the whole thing. If not, and you want to skip ahead 30 minutes, feel free. Have fun. You've been warned. Have a good one. And this week we have our third and final installment of the NFC West preview. The Arizona Cardinals round out the bottom, or technically the top, of the season previews. And with us we've got Blake Murphy of Revenge of the Birds. You can find him on Twitter, at BlakeMurphy7. Blake, how's it going this fine evening? Doing good. Good to be here, Oscar. Good to be here, David. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. And uh, we'll start as we start with every season preview. And it's going to be really about reviewing 2015 and in 2015, really, the tagline is kind of surviving the injuries, almost, because, you know, we thought last year Carson Palmer was going to, you know, save being wrapped in bubble wrap, going to break, because that's what he does. He's a quarterback who breaks stuff, uh, and that then the Cardinals were going to, you know, tumble from the top, and that was going to be that, but turns out he managed to survive most of, most of the year until Tyron Matthew got injured, and then maybe he hurt his finger there in week 16, and all of a sudden you lose to Carolina at the end of the year. Yeah, no, it's just that uh, it's kind of a crazy season for the Cardinals if you realize how bad the team has been for so long that 2015 could maybe rank as maybe their best season ever outside of the 2008 Super Bowl trip. Uh, the team came out and was number one in offense for the year, and part of that was just Carson Palmer putting up uh, MVP-like numbers coming off of a torn ACL. It really was um, a very, very impressive performance uh, when you consider that, how he limited a lot of the turnovers throughout the year and they lost a starting running, uh, the two starting running backs as well before David Johnson basically picked up and all of a sudden people recognized why they drafted him. So it's going to be a kind of an interesting point for the Cardinals is they almost got to the top of the summit. Um, but when you look at Palmer's health, see how terrible and how they weren't able to handle uh, the interior pass rush of the Panthers and how it took bad angles and weren't able to generate any pass rush on the Panthers in 2015. Uh, you can kind of see where they uh, went in the offseason to try to address some of those issues. So when you think back uh, over the course of the year, this was a year where you think to yourself, okay, the, the Cardinals are all over the place. Once, once Prince Arian takes over, they, they're kind of 10-1 season, all right, they're doing all right, and then you've got injuries, you've got a change in defensive coordinator. What do you think, is it really Bruce Arians is that, that's the constant here, or is it really the system taking the hold that really allowed them to do so well in, in, in 2015? Uh, the Cardinals are kind of an organization where it really shows that it's the sum of its parts and it has very, very strong parts all where it's not. Uh, Arians is definitely the, the face of the team. You could argue right now he's kind of the face of the franchise. Uh, when Arizona got covered in the all or nothing uh, Amazon special that came out this last offseason, uh, Arians is kind of the main star and the main almost like the main character of the show. If you look at it like that, he's been a very, very um, strong, well, dominant coach, but also been very uh, player friendly a lot where the players love playing for him so he's kind of been the constant holds it together uh, I think you could also argue that uh, GM Steve Keim has been uh, just as important as Arians where when players went down uh, they would always bring in different guys in uh, tw last year 2015 they lost uh, their starting outside linebacker Okafor to injury Keim goes out on the street finds Dwight Freeney he ends up leading the team with eight sacks so you can look at a lot of the culture that the team has established uh, as far as being able to try to find the uh, the best talent available and then also trying to put it together for a complete team is what their goal has been. So I think it's kind of more of an effort from all of them. Uh, and uh, especially when you look at the 2014 season where they lost Palmer to an ACL injury after he'd been gone for four weeks. And somehow they managed to limp into the playoffs with 
of Ryan Lindley at quarterback having to go against the Panthers. And it was just one of those things where you see it's a mess and was just a terrible, terrible finish to the season. But the fact that they even got into the playoffs after overcoming all those injuries at 11 and five and improved on their 10 win season is still pretty uh, tremendous attribute. So it is ultimately kind of uh, Arians and Kime are the two who are really kind of driving a lot of the different team behind uh, the, that and Palmer's resurgence, I would say. So I'm going to look at one of the the few like actual weaknesses from this team last year and, and kind of use that to pivot towards some of the offseason moves that were made. But when you look at the pass rush last year, um, football outsiders adjusted sack rate. Arizona finished in uh, 27th last year. So kind of towards the bottom of the league. And that's been something that they've really struggled to have, uh, you know, a consistent pass rush that. Where they, where they didn't have to blitz a ton, right? Like, they've always been a team, or at least over the last few years, that that have really relied heavily on the blitz to bring pressure. And then now this offseason, we look at, at some of the kind of bigger moves there, and it's, you know, Kim Diche uh, in the draft in the first round, and then obviously the big trade uh, for Chandler Jones uh, in shipping away Jonathan Cooper there. So do you see this as a, as a team that's still going to rely so heavily on the blitz going forward, or do they want to based on some of these offseason moves, kind of move towards more of a defensive system where they can let, a, you know, rush for, let some of their guys get after the passer and play more coverage, heavy, heavy schemes there. Yeah, well, Bruce Arians has always been an uber aggressive coach as far as he basically will chuck the ball deep and he'll basically send the house on a blitz. And I don't think the Cardinals are going to be uh, switching from like a blitzing team to trying to be like a generating pressure with four. I think that they will still blitz a ton. Uh, the difference is that either the blitzes I think will be much more effective this year, uh, or I think that you'll be able to at least see sometimes where they are able to get pressure with four or five guys instead of having to send a six or all out blitzes. They do did trust their corners a whole lot last year to hold up in one-on-one coverage. Having Patrick Peterson and Tyron Matthew will help a lot with that. I do think that the Cardinals are going to still stay a, um, a blitzing team, but hopefully the addition of a guy like Kim Dichi and Chandler Jones will be able to free Clayus Campbell up inside, and you'll start to see a little bit more of uh, a pass rush generated. If they can't really generate a pass rush, or if you notice that they're just doubling up Chandler Jones maybe, and then the other guys aren't getting pressure, it's going to be a really, really long season for the Cardinals where they won't be able to get off the field. It'll be really similar to 2015. So you mentioned Chandler Jones, and that's someone who, of course, was a, a quasi-blockbuster acquisition. This is someone who you know, you're effectively renting on a one-year deal, and there's there's a pretty good history of you know some players moving teams that help their team win. I think Charles Haley is one of them as a pass rusher, but there's a whole laundry list of players that kind of came over where they had previous success with the team, and that success didn't translate over to to their next team as a pass rusher. What are you really expecting from someone like a Chandler Jones? And do you think that he's really going to be a, a fix for some of your pass rushing woes? Or is this just kind of like a, eh, we'll see, we hope it works out, but we're probably still going to blitz 50% of the time? Yeah, I think with Jones, if you look at how he's done so far in camp and look at what the roster was like before, they've never really had a pass rusher who can kind of convert speed to power like him while also being able to hold up in the run game. Uh, before when they had Dwight Freeney last year, it was kind of where you just have to use a spin move every once in a while and you couldn't really trust him in all three downs at his age. You kind of have to bring him in situationally. Uh, so I think with Jones, he's not going to be some of the Cardinals coaches have been talking about 20 sack season from him, which I think is a little ridiculous and hyperbolic. Um, but I do think that uh, when I did some research, at least looking into where Jones won as far as uh, when he was rushing the passer, if it was inside, outside, how it worked around. He did seem to have the majority of a lot of the pressures and sacks he would get would be kind of coming off the edge. 
and that's the area where Arizona's going to have him. So I think that you'll end up seeing um, a definite improvement in the pass rush of the Cardinals this year, as long as Jones is healthy. He's one of the, as big of a key of that defense as Patrick Peterson is. So I think that you could see that uh, if he can maybe get you about 12 sacks a year, maybe even if teams double up and you get 10, it's still going to be enough of a pressure where you have to be able to know where he is on each play that I think you'll be able to see teams um, uh, start to have to get off the field a little quicker, at least throw the ball uh, a little more. So that's kind of one thing that Arizona struggled with a lot last year was you'd be able to put up a high-scoring drive, and then their defense wouldn't be able to get off the field in third down just because the quarterback would have all day to throw. So if Jones can come in can get 12 to 15 sacks, and I think that he's got the opportunity for more because he is in a contract year. After all, he's playing to try to be one of, uh, like, a you know, top five paid pass rusher in the NFL and everything. If he can come in with that motivation, I think that he could have a really high upside to this season. So it'll be interesting to watch and see uh, how he fits into the new scheme where he's having to play as an out 3-4 outside, well, Mostly a 3-4 outside linebacker, but mostly just an edge rusher the whole time. So I wanted to flip over to the other side of the ball really quick and, and talk about one other offseason addition that you guys had, and that's Evan Mathis. I think really is probably the most notable addition. I mean, obviously, you guys were were pretty set on the offensive side of the ball last year. Things went pretty well for, for you there. But this was an offensive line that I think, you know, you look at a couple years ago, was in really rough shape and, and wasn't performing well. And then all of a sudden last year, you look... Uh, Arizona ranked third in adjusted line yards by football outsiders, you know, looking at run blocking there fifth and in, in adjusted sack rate. Um, so really performed very well last year. And then now you add somebody, you know, a veteran player like Evan Mathis who has a pretty good track record. You know, how does he, I guess one is it, does it look like he's going to, to fit into that opposite guard spot from Mikey Upati and two, like where are you guys feeling about this offensive line right now? Like, uh, how have things kind of come together with some of these pieces that you've been able to add in free agency? Yeah, well, I, I know you Niners fans are pretty familiar with Mike Yapati as far as his addition last year, and that was kind of the biggest improvement to the Cardinals offensive line was just having a true run blocking guard who could pull. That's something that Bruce Arians has been doing all the way since he was back in Pittsburgh, Evan, do you get with Alan Fanica? Uh, Mathis is one of the big additions of this offseason because he brings a true veteran experience Arizona's having to kind of trot out a pretty inexperienced journeyman center in A.Q. Shipley. Good run blocker. Pass blocking has been kind of questioned uh, as far as the last couple of years. He's been still held up by Lyle Sandline just because Sandline was uh, still a better pass blocker, even if he was getting blown up in the run game all the time. And then on the other side, you've got a uh, effectively kind of a rookie player. He was a, a more of like a red-shirted first-round draft pick from last year in D.J. Humphreys. And he's been having a pretty fine offseason where he came in with it originally was called a knee deep by Bruce Arians because that's how far they'd have to stick their foot up his behind in order to get him motivated. Uh, so last year he just came in and was benched the whole season long. And a lot of Cardinals fans are wondering if it was a bust. You know, we've had our Levi Brown as a tackle in the past who was despised by the whole Valley. who gave up, I believe, three sacks one time in a Monday night game to the Niners with Alden Smith off the edge. So it just kind of people were very scared. But he's looked very good. He's in a new mentality. And having Evan Mathis... Uh, be kind of between those two guys as far as line adjustments, I think will be a big deal. Uh, the Cardinals did already see a little bit of some of what could be there uh, versus the Texans, where you'd watch some running plays where uh, between Humphrey's improved run blocking, uh, he's an upgrade from their starting right tackle last year, at least in that area. And then with Evan Mathis, he was a wide open hole for David Johnson to run through on the right side, which is something that we haven't seen in years from the Cardinals. Uh, now, there is one concern with Evan Mathis, and that would be not just his age, but he's had a, a foot surgery and I believe an ankle surgery in the offseason. And so he's had a whole bunch of veterans day off and he hasn't uh, there was one game he didn't start just out of um, 
kind of respect for the injury. So it is a question of if he can hold up for all 16 games, because if he can't, uh, then they don't really have uh, an experienced uh, starting offensive lineman they can kind of plug in right behind him. they got a couple of guys who could swing in, but uh, if you have three brand new guys on the right side of the line, then that's going to be a really difficult proposition for Carson Palmer, even maybe being able to run the football. So Evan Mathis is the guy who's anchoring that right side of the line this year. Uh, the question is if he'll be able to stay healthy the whole 16 games. So I've got one more question for you about an offseason addition, and this is really, you know, as much as, as we're rivals and we don't want you to succeed because, well, you know, you're a rival, it still sucks to see one of the players that you sign in free agency go down with a knee injury. And that, of course, is going to be your defensive back that you signed from the Buccaneers. That's Mike Jenkins. Um, you know, he tore his ACL, and now you've got a question of whether or not your third-round pick is going to fill in. Um, you know, that's going to be Brandon Williams or whether it's going to be someone else. So who, who do you anticipate really filling that role that's left because of that injury? And is it going to be kind of a plug-and-play situation? Or do you really think that there's going to be a dip in terms of performance at the other, at the other cornerback position? Yeah, I, I definitely think that there could be a dip at the position. Last year, Gerard Powers, the team was happy with moving on from him because he didn't have the athleticism or the size that they liked, at least for an outside corner. But he's still a very smart, very savvy corner. He'd still be in the right place at the right time. And they've kind of gone into a totally different direction where that Mike Jenkins uh, was supposed to be kind of that fail safe where if there was something that kind of happened at least as far as for any of their starting young corners, he'd be kind of be a guy who could step in and that didn't go to plan. He went down with a hand injury where he had a broken hand earlier in uh, the season. So he was out for about two to three weeks, finally gets healthy in time to come back for the uh, third preseason game with a cast on his hand. And he ends up uh, tearing his ACL in a non-contact. So it's something where the Cardinals paid, uh, one of their special teams uh, gunners, Justin Bethel, they paid him, I believe it was $15 million or so over the next three years because uh, they expected him to step up and be that starting number two corner. And he ended up uh, re-injuring his ankle. He had surgery on the offseason. He didn't have a shot. And Brandon Williams was their third-round rookie. Um, he came out of Texas a and having spent one year playing cornerback and only like uh, the rest of his career was at running back. So it's just kind of one of those parts where looking at a player and no one really expected anything from him this season. He came into training camp and showed a huge knack as far as for press coverage. He showed athleticism, but he also showed a penchant for just being raw at the position where he'd bite on a couple of double moves on some of the motion. And sometimes he just wouldn't look back for the ball, but there are other times where he'd make uh, incredible plays or he'd watch him like Larry Fitzgerald and Michael Floyd. He'd just show off tremendous closing speed and be able to lock down guys deep with some 4-3 speed. So I think Williams is the guy who's going to be their starter. Uh, Justin Bethel has shown so far, at least in preseason over the last couple of years, that while he's got a tremendous ability as a special teamer, he just doesn't have the um, ability to be able to develop any further than what he is as a corner. He still isn't being able to look back for the football. He still hasn't kind of been able to figure out a good sense of space when the ball is in the air. And so it's kind of where you've reached kind of a, a point with him that you can't really go any further, whereas Brandon Williams, while he's incredibly raw, is still making strides each week and there's still upside. So I think that they're going to roll with Williams and take uh, the ups and downs that come for each week. So I think that this is going to mean that there'll be some struggles in their secondary and he's going to get picked on. Um, so, yeah, any cornerback's going to get picked on outside of Patrick Peterson. And I do think the Cardinals are going to have some... Uh, so definitely growing pains as long as uh, Williams is the outside number two corner. There is still a possibility that they're going to wait until uh, final roster cuts, get another veteran, and that veteran who isn't even on the team yet may end up taking over if Williams keeps struggling throughout the season. So that is another possibility to consider. Let's switch to 2016 then, and we've got a few questions about what this season holds because 
we we did a model for the 49ers where we we don't think that we're going to do very well this year not an uncommon position at this point but there's something that switches from year to year that kind of can help predict whether teams will go from zero to hero so to speak and that's going to be a record in close games and Bruce Arians has had remarkable luck with close games over the course of his career he's 19 and 8 in games where his offense is a fourth quarter comeback and or a game winning drive opportunity there's no other active head coach that's above 500. And there were a couple of close games last year that the Cardinals were able to pull out as well to get to the record that they ended up finishing with. So is this an issue where we're going to see Arians regress to the mean? Or is there really something there where he can sustain a 70% win percentage when it comes to fourth quarter comebacks or you know, games where he's got a one score lead? Yeah, I think with the team um, last year, I think they kind of proved a bit of as far as that when it comes down to winning close games that they do have a stronger ability to close out than just kind of getting lucky on some last minute heaves. Uh, that was kind of what the whole 2014 season had been was the Cardinals started, I believe, with a nine and one record. And when you broke it down, it was more of they didn't have Palmer. They didn't have a run game like at all. There was no running back that was healthy on the roster. And their defense is basically having to just kind of dial up blitzes and exotic uh exotic different blitzes from all over the place by Todd Bowles. And that, there's a big reason why he won coach of the year is because they were able to adjust um, in the last minute and be able to kind of pull out these last minute victories. The last year, there was at least a change that we noted as far as where instead of basically having the Cardinals be down like, you know, 13 to 17 going to the fourth quarter, they actually would start blowing out some teams where they had, you know, a blowout. Unfortunately, of the Niners last year, everyone can remember how Colin Kaepernick started that game with the two pick sixes. Um, they also had a blowout of the Bears and would start winning big. Uh, there was a couple instances where they did get down. I know that the uh, a lot of people were shocked to see that they lost to the Landry Jones-led Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> was kind of one of the biggest kind of flops that the team had last year. And they also ended up um, being completely down and just getting uh, almost blown out by the Cleveland Browns going into the halftime of the road game. But they both uh, were managed to come back uh, against the Cleveland Browns and actually blew them out by... Uh, I believe it was two or more touchdowns by the end of the game. So I think that the team, because of their offense, has finally reached a pinnacle where they'll be able to um, kind of get through a lot of the tough games. Now, the quick question is going to be when it gets down to the playoff time, will they be able to have that sustainable ability to kind of win the game in the clutch versus Carolina? You saw them get blow out, blown out uh, in the Packers game. You could either argue that, hey, it was the Cardinals were going to win along. They had a game plan or just got super, super lucky against the Packers with that Larry Fitzgerald run and then the ensuing show of pass. Or you could say the Arians kind of threw the game away by throwing and going for it on a couple of times in third down when they should have been running the ball in the clock out. So Aaron Rodgers gets two Hail Marys, and that ends up almost costing them the game. So I think that while Arians is a guy who can definitely be a riverboat gambler, uh, he, the motto that the team has for him is no risk it, no biscuit. And sometimes it does bite him in the butt. I think that overall, you're just going to end up still seeing that this is a dominant Cardinals offense. They have faith in Carson Palmer. And as long as he doesn't turn the ball over in the clutch, uh, that's going to be the defining factor the team will continue to win. If you start seeing Palmer start pulling a Matt Schaub where he starts throwing pick sixes in the first quarter or starts all of a sudden um, just turning the ball over when he's supposed to be going down and winning the game, I think that's when you're going to start to see regression and realize that Palmer's career is at an end. As of right now, though, his arm strength still seems to be strong, velocity as good as ever. So I don't think it's going to be this season that we'll see it, uh, barring any type of injury that might take place. So I want to look at, I mean, obviously, and, and we've talked about quite a few reasons now, but th there's a lot to like about this team and a lot of reasons to kind of expect them to be a, a similar caliber team to what they were last year. But 
you know, obviously with every team in the NFL, there's always kind of that other side and looking at things that could possibly go wrong. Now, as somebody that doesn't follow the, the, the Cardinals quite as closely as, as I'm sure you do, you look at this roster, right? And, and there aren't a lot of the same sort of holes that you looked at in the past. I mean, before, you know, in the last couple of years, you, you would you would point to the offensive line, which we kind of talked about. Um, you would point to, you know, not having really a consistent pass rush or somebody on the edge that you can really rely on to get after the passer without having to blitz heavily. And again, we touched on that a little bit earlier, too. But it seems like they've kind of addressed a lot of those needs, right? The offensive line was very good last year and and could be even better if somebody like Evan Mathis stays healthy. You add Chandler Jones to the mix on on that pass rush. Uh, and so there, there seems to be a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the holes in this roster don't seem to be there anymore. I mean, really it comes, seems to come down to will Carson Palmer stay healthy, um, at least from an outsider's perspective. So for somebody that does follow the the Cardinals much more closely, what are your concerns? Like what are the, the problem spots or potential problem spots that you would be worried about going into the season? Yeah, well, I think that you uh, kind of summed up a lot of it right there where it does really revolve around Carson Palmer. I don't think it's just about his health, though. I think that turnovers are another big issue. We've seen uh, so far in the preseason, Palmer's actually on a couple of screen passes, thrown two uh, pick sixes, at least so far, where the ball's just been either batted in the air or returned by the defense, at least, which isn't something you'd normally see from him. Uh, So that's kind of one area, at least if the Cardinals start turning the ball over, it's going to be very, very difficult to catch up in in any game for any team if they're handing uh, the ball off. I think that the other thing that would be a concern would be after their success last season, after kind of a trip to the mountaintop, and then also a lot of uh, national coverage uh, that's been increased, as well as like they have an Amazon TV series about them. I think that uh, there could be a fear of the Cardinals come out and uh, just think that they're basically like the, uh, you know, the hot you know, poop basically would be <laughs> the way that you can say it is that they think that they're great. Oh, and it's okay. You, you can say shit. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, no. That's <laughs> to say, I was like, ah, oh, just in case there's, you know, some younger viewers listening. But no, it's if the team thinks that they're great, and that's where, like, you look at last year, they went into San Francisco with Blaine Gabbard starting, and it took them having to get a fourth quarter comeback just to win that game where they just did not play well. So I think that's kind of the biggest one is just that mentalness. And Arians is a good coach as far as. Uh, keeping the team in their mind right but there's still times where you saw last year versus Seattle it just kind of were just didn't look the same just got totally just overwhelmed um and the last game, week of the season and versus Carolina they just had a poor week of practice leading up to where I think the team was just looking on past the Super Bowl and just completely ignored the team that was right in front of them so there's a lot of areas I think that they could be concerned about as far as for um just that mental state of the team uh, health is always a big issue. The biggest concern as far as for other weaknesses um, that I would probably pick out of the team, and it's kind of hard to say specific weaknesses, but I would say that um, right now with the center and the right tackle position as new players, you'd probably look at that area. And another one would just be as far as or if you're looking at um, power and smash mouth football, uh, the Cardinals are a team that give up a couple of long runs usually each year, and part of that's because Steve Kimes constructed the roster in a way that uh, – you see with Dale Buchanan as a smaller linebacker, although he's got speed. Um, Kevin Minter is a guy who uh, isn't a linebacker. Maybe he can't cover as well as some other coverage linebackers can. Uh, but you could see at least the team be able to take on some of those smaller running backs, um, whereas they're built for the spread and just try to pound the football down their throats. I think that could be one area uh, where you can see a, as kind of a weakness for the team. But overall, the team is basically going to go about as far as Carson Palmer is going to take them, provided that they're at least healthy. Uh, I think that that is probably the um, biggest weakness for the team is going to be that if Palmer gets hurt or if there's something that goes wrong, Drew Staten has not been playing well. I don't think that the team would uh, 
you're looking about as good a, like we saw with the Vikings what happened where they lost Teddy they've gone from a playoff team now all of a sudden they're wondering if they're going to have Sean Hill or try to trade for you know Mark Sanchez or something so I think that between that and then as we mentioned before with Brandon Williams if they don't find a number two corner who can step up consistently the teams can keep picking on them it's going to be really really hard to generate a pass rush they can just do a quick passing offense to a wide receiver so other than that I think that the Cardinals are a very well coached well-disciplined team. Uh, they have um, a whole lot of players returning. This is kind of the last stat for the section I'll leave with is that the Cardinals have every single point that was scored last year. All those players have come back on offense. The only points that they have missing are two pick sixes from uh, the safety Rashad Johnson and then uh, Corey Redding, who retired. Other than that, the whole offense is back with a second year uh uh, in that scheme under their belt. So I think that you could end up seeing a whole lot more offensive potential this year. And their defense arguably could only either get better in a lot of ways, but it might be that the pass defense ends up being susceptible as a, uh, as a result. Well, I think that's a pretty good wrap up for questions for 2016. And, and like we do with everyone else, and like we have done with everyone else, we're going to go to the lightning round at this point. So if you're not familiar with the rules of the lightning round, they're pretty simple. Answer quickly. Um, it's a lightning round, uh, but that's pretty much all the rules. You got it. It's like word association. Give us the first thing that comes into your head, uh, and we'll just quick fire questions at you, uh, and then we'll get to the final predictions here at the end of the show. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. Just give us the first thing that comes into your head, and we'll move right on. Right. Number one, will Carson Palmer play all 16 games? I'm going to go with yes. Ooh. I, I, let's, this is one that got us last year. David, what do you think? I mean, I, I wouldn't bank on it, you know. Uh, Lightning round, that's all you get. There, okay. Uh, number, <laughs> t- n- number two, <laughs> number two, can you actually get a biscuit without risking it? Oh, this one I'm going to say no. You can't get the biscuit. You got to at least go for it on fourth down. You can't be like Jeff Fisher. See, I'm going to go abstract on you. I'm going to go ahead and say that puppies sometimes get biscuits and don't risk it. Uh, number three, what, can, what pick should you draft David Johnson in your fantasy draft this week? I have him going as around the eight or ninth pick. Next question. Who ends the season with a higher blitz percentage? Last year, Arizona was at 50%. This preseason, San Francisco has been at 40%. So which team ends with the higher blitz percentage at the end of this year, Arizona or San Francisco? I'm still going to say Arizona. That's probably a good call. Uh, number five. Does, uh, does Tyron Matthew start the season week one coming back from ACL injury? Ooh. That one's kind of going to end up being a push, but right now I'd say that that would be leaning yes, but it's very possible that it could turn to a no. So I'll lean yes, slightly, very, very slightly, like 51%. Number six, do you sweep Seattle this year? Oh, no, I don't think they sweep Seattle this year. Seattle's too good for that. Now, they don't have a good line, but I don't think they sweep them. Number seven, which one Which one of your wide receivers ends the year as the team leader in yards, and is that the same person as the team leader in receptions? Oof, that's actually a good one. I'm going to say yes, that's the leader in yards, and yes in receptions, and I'm going to be a little bold here and say Michael Floyd would be the leader in both. Well, that's what I'm targeting in fantasy. Uh, and the final question is, Tyran, Tyran so far away, the best fantasy football team name or the absolute best fantasy football team name? Oh, gosh. I, I have to take one of the ones that I came up with at least ahead of that, and that was keeping up with the Kimdichians. I think that that one would be <laughs> that one would be player number one right there. But Tyrant, Tyrant, Farley, got to be a good well, that's second there. That's the winner. That's officially the winner. I'm not going to fight you on that one. That's a damn fine team name. <laughs> 
I love that. Well, that, that's the end of the lightning round. And so really just rounding it out. What's your final prediction for the record for the Cardinals in 2016? And we usually ask that you do two things. One, overall record. And then two, where they finish in the division. Gosh, yeah, I think that this year they're going to be top of the division again, just the more that I watch uh, Seattle's offensive line and see that they still have Rawls coming back from injury. Uh, Their defense has kind of been still the same. I think that they're going to end up top in the division, but I think it's still going to be very close. Uh, So I've got them finishing at least with the uh, 12-4, and a little step back from last year. I actually have them right now tied with Seattle at 12-4. and I think that if they can basically win the the first game, versus Seattle, which will be a very important game at home. I think that they'll be able to manage with a tiebreaker uh, to be able to kind of be the top of the division, but it's going to be kind of a slugfest between the two of those, and we all know how Jeff Fisher, you know, ends up having to win a game or two against one of the division rivals to save his job every year. So I think that that's going to end up being kind of what ends up determining who wins the division. So I've got the Cardinals and Seahawks tied at 12-4, and and I think that the Cardinals are going to end up edging them out, but we'll see what it turns out like at the end of the year. Man, David, remember when twelve and four was like a step back? When you were like, "Oh man, twelve yeah. and four not gonna be that good of a year." Yeah, those 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 were the good old days. Um, I don't yeah, remember I mean, what those are like anymore. It feels so far away. It's like another yeah. lifetime ago. You could you say that it's Tyran Tyran so far away? <laughs> you, I mean, well, I don't know if one should say that, but one could <laughs> say that. <laughs> well, you know, we we think that Arizona is going to finish the top of the division as well. That's why we did them in reverse order. So obviously, we don't include ourselves in this, but we had St. Louis, uh, then we had the the, Seah- the Seattle Seahawks season preview, and now of course we've got Arizona. So we too think Arizona is going to finish at the top, but always looming over is going to be uh, you know your bubble wrap quarterback, and that's going to be Carson Palmer because. If he's not in there, this team looks very, very different. Oh, yeah. No no doubt about it there. If he goes down at least, then you're just going to start looking at um team being like, all right, well, uh, who's the quarterback for next year? You know, <laughs> fans will just all of a sudden turn and then start wanting to have Matt Barkley back or something at some point. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I believe that we call that Cowboys disease. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I more okay. think of it more of like how – um. Uh, how it's more of like where you, if you don't have a starting quarterback or if you've got two, you really don't have one at all. Yeah, you can tell 49ers fans, I think that'll make sense. Uh, but Blake, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. And as usual, you can always catch Blake on the Twitters at BlakeMurphy7 or read his articles at Revenge of the Birds. Blake, thanks again for coming on. It was great having you. Yep, good to be on, guys. Thanks again. Well, that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Let me go ahead and kick on this outro music from the Barbary Sound. They did a custom song for us there, so I'm going to go ahead and throw that in there as usual. And, uh, yeah, it was a good talk. It was a good interview. Blake Murphy definitely knows his stuff. Uh, Covered a lot. A little bit longer on the episode, but I figured with some of the cap stuff it was going to go over. Yeah, I mean, uh, there was was a lot to get to this episode. Preseason game, roster cuts, the Cardinals preview, obviously, so... Uh, yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed it. I mean, it's a little bit longer episode than normal, but hey, preseason, we're getting back into it. Um, next week, we're going to be getting into preseason uh, previews are done. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the final preseason game because, I mean, honestly, I'm probably not even going to watch a whole lot of it. I'll probably watch the Kaepernick stuff just to, to see because, you know, that's what I do with my time is apparently watch Colin Kaepernick play football. Um, but... You know, there's going to be season preview action. That's going to be our last episode before we get into regular season games and start kind of getting into the the normal swing of things. 
Absolutely. So I will definitely, I'll probably be, definitely watch the fourth preseason game. Uh, it is my birthday weekend. And what else am I going to do but spend my birthday weekend? Actually, the games are on Thursday, right? Yeah, every game is on Thursday. I actually yeah. have to watch the, uh, the the Saints-Ravens game for Pro Football Focus. So I'll be, I'll be watching that uh, while the Niner game's going on. I'll, I'll probably come back and watch, uh, you know, the, at least the Kaepernick series uh, over the, over the course of the weekend. But yeah, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a busy weekend. College football is kicking off. Um, get get right. our first game Thursday, and then obviously throughout the the weekend there. So a lot of football. Football is yep. going to be everywhere from now on until until February. Sunday night, Texas Notre Dame, hook them. Uh, but that about does Wait, it. That's Mon- got- Monday night, right? Isn't that a no? I'm no, pretty Sunday? sure it's the only. It's pretty it's sure it's the game. only college game on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. It's at seven p.m. on Sunday. There's one sure. on Sunday night, one on Monday night. Uh, yep. Everything else is on Fridays, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You got it. Well, thanks again to everyone who's also left a review for us on iTunes. Definitely helps people find the show. Uh, and so, if you've left a review, thank you so much. If you haven't left a review, what the hell are you doing? Go do that now. Uh, we'll get back to you next week recap the final preseason game and give you a season preview and as always go Niners hello I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation And I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain. Or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission. Or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.